But today is a special day because I have the uh, privilege to uh, invite up uh, dear brother uh, um, Glenn, who is, um, I was in my office one day and I saw an email come through and uh, clicked on the email and it was this guy who just said, hey, I'm, I'm, my wife and I are called by God to go to the nation of Turkey and uh, I had been praying you know, Brent and I had been praying for a while about what, where are we going to support missionaries and how's missions going to work here at this church. And uh, we had some ideas of what, what countries we wanted to support. And then all of a sudden I get this email and then a whole host of other things begin to happen. And uh, Glenn comes up and he and I meet for lunch. And I knew after about 15 minutes of hearing him talk about his passion for God's sovereignty, for the salvation of souls and for the love of God's people there in Turkey that I knew this was this was a brother. This was a man who uh, we, we share the same passion. Our hearts beat the same way. So um, I have the honor of inviting him to, to come in today and uh, to share with us God's word. So would you put your hands together and welcome our brother Glenn South. Well, thanks. Are we, we on up there? All right. Well, thanks for having us in. If you, if you all remember, we were with you. Um, it was either the last week of June or the first week of, of July, and I made that horrible joke about King Arthur, and so it's great to be on King Arthur Drive uh, again. And uh, it's, we're glad to be with you guys, and thanks for letting us be here. And more importantly, uh, I obviously love the chance to get together with churches and talk about our plan and our desire to see churches planted and pastors trained in Turkey. But more than that, I love opening the word and sharing the word with others, and that is the exact reason we're going to Turkey. Um, before we get into the word, I want to share uh, as a source of encouragement, um, I don't know that I could have planned this service better, just the way it has worked with the songs and the text we're going to be in, and the report of what is presently going on in the country of Turkey. Uh, we would ask you to pray for that, because there, there is much change right now taking place. Sonia and I, Lord willing, will be, tar- uh, be leaving, departing one year from now. Uh, to get to Turkey and begin learning the language and, Lord willing, be used of God to plant churches there. And we're praying that door stays open. But nonetheless, we do acknowledge that God is sovereign and his, his kingdom will advance in Turkey, whether we have a part in that or not. Um, but even if they keep people out, they can't keep our prayers out. And we serve a sovereign God. And so we ask you to pray for Turkey. We have a family out of our church, uh, Jake and Steph Talby. And they were actually missionaries, church planting missionaries in China for just about eight years. And God used them in those eight years in a very miraculous way. And they saw four or five churches started in those seven or eight years. And they began training pastors. And they had a whole host of pastors they were training. Well, one day they show up for church and so did the Chinese government. And Jake was detained. And this was just in 2014. Jake was detained and he did not preach that morning. He was taken to the local uh, police department and was questioned for several hours. Um, and the verdict finally came about three or four days later that he was deported for the work that they were doing of preaching the gospel and making disciples and planting churches. And so they had to leave. And so they went to Taiwan, which is very near to China, and they speak Mandarin as well. And it was the same, same time zone. So they went there for this time being, seeing it was the Lord's will. Since they departed, the pastors they trained have continued pastoring churches. They've continued raising up more 
disciples. More pastors are being trained now. And this coming year alone, they're planting five new churches. And so I would like to encourage you in the fact that we serve a sovereign God. And it doesn't matter if the American is there or not. And we pray for um, God to to do a great work in what um, is presently taking place with Andrew and his wife. We pray that if God sees fit, that he would let them stay. But nonetheless, we can rejoice that um, those Turkish believers in that church, that's God's church. And his work will continue. And we just simply get to have a part in it. And so we can rejoice in that this morning. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to Acts 4 this morning. And simultaneously, if you would, slide a finger in Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2 is used here in Acts 4 in their prayer. And so we want to look at Psalm 2 um, as we go through Acts 4 and see why it is they pray Psalm 2. But Acts 4 is what we're going to look at um, in verses 23 through 31 here. Acts 4. We'll begin reading here in a moment, Um, but what we want to see here from Acts 4 is our need for boldness. And as I said, I don't think that could have transitioned any more smoother than it did. As we prayed for the work that God is doing in Turkey and even the work that he is doing um, and will do here in Miami County, uh, we know that we need boldness for this. And we see that here in Acts 4. So let's read this text and we'll we'll make some comments and then get into it. Acts 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Our father, you are the sovereign Lord who made the sea and the earth and the heaven and all that in them is. Um, Lord, there, you have always been. You are indeed, as we sang, the great I am. And in that, we take refuge, we take strength, we have joy, and we find boldness in this mission that you've given us. Father, your word is life. Um, By your word, we live. Every man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we know, Lord, we need to hear from you today. Um, not, Not my words, not our thoughts. I pray, God, your word would be clear and that Lord, you know our hearts better than we do. Um, We are so easily self-deceived, and we are slow to repent. We are slow to acknowledge that you are at work, and we are slow to acknowledge what it is that we need to do. And so, Father, I pray your spirit would pour out and that you would truly work um, through your word. In Christ's name, amen. As I said from Acts 4, we want to look at boldness. And boldness, as soon as I say that, 
I presume, uh, we think often that boldness is something that individuals going to a place such as Turkey would need, right? Well, Glenn is going to Turkey, so that necessitates boldness. I mean, individuals are being detained, uh, potentially deported in a 99% Islamic nation. So, of course, he would speak about boldness. I'm a relatively young man. I'm in my coming up on my mid-20s, actually, even though I look like I'm about 40. I'm in my mid-20s, and um, even from the time I was in high school to, to now, um, I've, I've really noticed some fairly major cultural changes and shifts take place in our culture and in our society. I think a few years ago, maybe um, the truth of the gospel and maybe even our need for boldness to proclaim it to those around us was taken for granted. Because we lived in a seemingly Christian society. We lived in a seemingly Christian culture. But you know, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think now, because of things we've seen take place both in our culture and around the world, we, even here in Piqua, Ohio, we realize the need for boldness if we are going to be faithful to preaching the gospel to people here in Piqua in Miami County. Right? Because we live in a very postmodern society where truth is relative. Right? Everything is subjective. And so in light of that, when we come to a society in a culture and a people in a particular region and we tell them Jesus is the only way, right? Acts 4 verse 12, Peter said, there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. So when we're coming to a, a culture and a society and a people who believe and acknowledge nothing, They acknowledge that there's no acknowledging that everything is relative and subjective and it might work for you, but that's not what I need. We need boldness for that. And I think even more so, we realize that our message, the gospel message, brings about hostility. Uh, It's not as well received. It's not as much a morally upright and acceptable message as maybe it was many years ago. And we realize from that our need for boldness to preach this gospel. Here in Acts chapter 4, we see that need. Uh, Prior to this prayer that we read in verse 23, Peter and John had had just had a a pretty miraculous moment, a pretty, if you will, epic moment. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, some big things began to happen, and we'll look at that here in a moment. But in Acts 3, if you recall, Peter and John heal a lame man. They heal a man who could not physically walk. And in light of that, all the people who saw it realized a great work has been done here. Something miraculous has happened here. And it was really displaying that really God is behind this because this, this impotence that he had, this, this uh, problem that he had was a very direct result of sin and God just healed it. Showing that in the name of Jesus, sin is cast out. And so that opened up this opportunity, this door for the disciples, the apostles, Peter and John, to preach the gospel to a large mass of people. So many people respond to this message, but there was a group who really didn't like what was taking place. There was a very religious group who, re, who saw all that was taking place. They heard the message that Peter and John were preaching. And consequently, much like what has happened with Andrew, they detained Peter and John. And they threatened them and told them to not speak the name of Jesus anymore. And before you think um, that maybe Peter and John didn't actually think anything was going to take place, let me remind you that the people who arrested, who detained Peter and John in Acts 4, is the same council, it's the same religious group that detained Jesus and killed him. It's the same group that slaughtered Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 3 and 4, Peter is preaching to them and he says to them, you killed the Holy One. 
You killed the anointed of God. You killed the Christ, but then caused them to repent. And so this is the same group that arrested Jesus and slaughtered him is the same group that has now arrested Peter and John. So they know this group, if they want to get the job done, they know very well how to get this job done. But in the midst of that, Peter and John preach the gospel to them. And then they're let go and they come to the, 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 the church, they come to their friends, to the disciples, and they report all that God did. So undoubtedly, you and I in this moment could say, wow, they need boldness. They need a source of encouragement to be faithful to preaching the gospel. And I would like to say this is a passage that is relevant for both you and me, regardless of locale, because we are confronting the same circumstances and the same condition of the heart. You see, oftentimes we misunderstand or we misappropriate or we, we, um, we take for granted our need for boldness because we often misunderstand the nature of two things and the mission that God has given us. God has given us this mission to go forth and make disciples of all peoples in all regions of this world, but we often misunderstand the nature of two things. One, we really do misunderstand the nature of the people whom we are engaging. You see, when we engage people with the gospel— We're not engaging people who are just a little beat up and need a little bit of help. And Jesus is going to come alongside and help them and give them this great life transformation. The gospel comes to rebellious hearts. The gospel comes to a heart who has committed treason against the creator God. And they don't want the gospel message. In fact, in Romans 1, Paul makes it very clear that everyone is a hater of God. Everyone is born in obstinance toward the law of God. Everyone is born in rebellion to God. Consequently, the second thing we often misevaluate is the nature of the message that we preach. You see, we have a message of absolute truth. We have a message that salvation is only in the name of Jesus and that you must submit to King Jesus, that you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to have faith in Jesus for God to give you salvation for it to, uh, to be made right with God. And consequently, that is a message that necessitates boldness, regardless of where we are. If we are working tomorrow, nine to five here in Piqua, and we have coworkers whom we really want to share the gospel with, we know they do not yet follow Jesus and find joy in Jesus alone, we need boldness to faithfully share the gospel with them. If we have lost family members, most of my family would be lost. I need boldness to be faithful to preaching the gospel to them. And if we're going to Turkey to preach the gospel to a people whom have never heard it, man, we need boldness to be faithful to that task. And we see that here in Acts chapter 4. So to give us an understanding of all that's taking place here in in the book of Acts, let's consider a couple things here. In Acts 2, something really magnificent took place. Something huge took place that really is needed for us to understand what exactly is Luke trying to teach us all throughout the book of Acts. If you would listen to this um, this, uh, verse really quick from Acts 3, and this will give us some understanding about what's going on here in the book of Acts. Acts 3 and verse 18 But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
So now something miraculous took place in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It ushered in really a brand new age. When you read the Old Testament and it talks about the last days and the age to come, that is that time post-resurrection. Once in Acts verse 8, we see Christ ascend to the Father. That ushered in this brand new time. We are now truly in the last days. From now until the time that Christ returns, all of the Old and New Testament refers to that as the last days. And that ushered in this. And all throughout the Old Testament, God made these promises. You can see it in Isaiah 49 um, and all throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah. God promised that one day he would come and restore his people Israel. Israel and the Old Testament were the people of God. God chose them. God chose them and not because of anything special in them, according to Moses in Deuteronomy. And he chose them and they were his, his people, his, his, his visible reign on this earth. And we see that even in the Old Testament, God began with Adam and Adam was like God's vice regent, if you will, his representative for his kingdom on this earth. But then Adam fell. And then Israel came about, and Israel was the people of God. And God made these promises that he would begin to to restore the people of Israel through all of their fellings, through all of their rebellion, through all of their hardship being taken into captivity. God promised that one day, beginning in Jerusalem, he would indeed restore his people Israel. We see that happen in and through the life of Christ and then through the church, but it didn't quite happen the way that Israel anticipated it to happen. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, Peter makes it very, very clear that God has begun his work of restoring Israel in Jerusalem, but it's now happening through the gospel. You see, now what the disciples are making very clear to all the people in Israel is God does have in Israel... God does have a people for his name. Galatians chapter 3, Romans chapter 9. God has a people, but not all Israel are national Israel. Not all Israel is ethnic Israel. And Peter and John and the disciples and the apostles are making it very clear. You guys presume to be the people of God. But if you don't believe Jesus, you're not it anymore. In fact, in Acts 3, when they're preaching, he, they quote Moses and they said, the Lord will raise up a prophet and anyone who does not believe that prophet will be cut off from the people. And so now the disciples are making it very clear to the surrounding community, God has his people. And even if you were born a Jew, even if you were born in Israel, if you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, you're no longer it. You're out. You are behind the times. You're no longer in the crew anymore. You have not believed on Jesus. You're not the Israel of God anymore. So now you have a bunch of Jews and then Gentiles preaching this message to historically, who was historically the people of God. That's a message that necessitates boldness. I mean, you have people for thousands of years who are saying, we are the people of God. We are the sons and the daughters of Abraham. But then the disciples come to them and they say, not anymore. No longer. That prophet that they promised is Jesus. And that work that God promised that he would restore Israel beginning in Jerusalem, that he began through the church. And if you don't believe that, you're not it anymore. That is a message that necessitates boldness. So the disciples here need boldness. But here in our prayer, if we would look here again at Acts chapter 4, look at something interesting here in Acts 4 that we see. Acts 4 and verse 25. 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. So as they are pleading with God in verse 31 for boldness, we see them in the midst of their prayer, they quote Psalm chapter 2. And so if you would, for the time being, let's turn to Psalm chapter 2. And what we want to figure out is, these believers and these apostles who pray Psalm 2, and they use Psalm 2 in their plea for boldness, they know the context of Psalm chapter 2. They know it was King David who wrote Psalm chapter 2. They know the message that David was teaching the people of God in Psalm 2. And they see that as being fulfilled in their circumstances of hostility in preaching the gospel. In fact, in Acts 4, you don't need to look at it again. In Acts 4, it's so crucial. In verse 27, they say, for truly. They quote Psalm 2 in their prayer and they say, yes, God, truly. What you said through David is happening right here and right now. And so what we want to do here in Psalm 2 is, is look at Psalm 2 and figure out what is the message of Psalm 2 and why the disciples teach us that that is fulfilled in their day and their time in hostility and preaching the gospel. So Psalm 2 here is what we're going to look at, and let's keep this in mind. The man who penned, the man who wrote Psalm 2, is King David. This is the same David who killed David and Goliath. He is now king over Israel. But in his present circumstances, he is facing, just like the disciples in Acts 4, he is experiencing, he is facing some hostility. He is facing some unfavorable circumstances. In light of that, he begins to recall and work out and interpret his present circumstances in light of the covenant that God made with him. You see, do you recall Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abram out? He calls Abraham out. He makes a covenant with Abraham, does he not? He promises Abraham that Abraham and his seed are going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. In Genesis 15, God makes it very clear to Abraham that his seed is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That begins and it still is working out and finding its fulfillment in the covenant that God made with David. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. And he promises David that David will be the king and that David's throne will be established forever. And God makes it very clear that David will have a global dynasty, that David will have a kingdom that is both global in its expansion and eternal in its endurance. And so he's working that out in light of his present circumstances. So we want to see three things here about this king in Psalm chapter 2. The first thing we want to see here in Psalm 2, if you're taking notes, we want to see the plot against God's king. We see the plot against God's king. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... So now what had happened is God established David really as like the vice regent over his people. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this happening where God establishes a head over his people. He is the representative. He is the the leader over the people. Much like today, we elect, we nominate the president, and he is the leader. He's the representative, if you will, of the people of the U.S., of the United States of America. David was established by God. But now... In the midst of his establishment, his established kingdom, there are some people plotting against him. 
You see, God had commissioned David not only to reign as king over the people of Israel, but he commissioned them to go and take over surrounding lands. I'm sure you've heard that Israel was promised this this land, and David was to go forth and conquer this. And specifically, here in, in Psalm 2, there are three kingdoms that are really trying to rise up against David. Assyria and Babylon and Egypt are trying to rise up and take over King David's throne. They're trying to dethrone the king of God. They are plotting against God's king. In fact, David even knows what they're saying. So I have this uncle. His name is is Brian. So if there are any Brians in here, no offense here. I'm not saying you're crazy, but the name is fitting. Um, He is, he's kind of out there, man. He has these wild conspiracy theories. Every time I talk to him, he's reading one of these, these crazy books about the next um, New World Order or the, the plot of the government to overthrow uh, the, the U.S. And so he has guns ready and he has plans ready. He has bags ready that when the government tries to take over, he's going to take them on, man. Like he is fully ready. And when I talk to him, I'm like... I don't know what you ate before you went to bed last night. I don't know what you dreamed, but man, you need to lay off of it because this is weird. So he's, he has these crazy conspiracy theories. David in Psalm 2 verse 2 sounds like my crazy uncle because he, he quotes what they're saying. He says, against the Lord and against his anointed saying. But these reports about what these plotters are planning are coming to David, are being reported to David. And look what he says in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, God established David as king, but these surrounding kings want David's position. They want David's kingdom. They don't want David's rule and reign over them, so they are plotting against him. And as we will see when we get back to Acts 4, that plot, that conspiracy against the king of God, against the plans and the purposes of God, it continued in the person of Christ, and it continues even today against his church. So we see the plot against God's king, but then in light of that, we see the covenant with God's king. Look if you would at verse 4. So these, they're plotting against him. They're trying to overthrow him. They're trying to dethrone him and take David down. But in verse 4, David doesn't appear to be fretting. He who sits in the heavens laughs. (laughs) The Lord holds them in derision. He looks at them and he says, you guys think I'm fretting about what you're planning? God is in heaven laughing at you. You cannot prevail. You are not going to win. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I love verse 6. That's God responding to the plotters, and he says, as for me. So he's saying, you kings, you rebellious people think you're going to win against me. You think you're going to prevail against me. So he's saying, here's your plan, kings. Here's your plan, rulers of the earth. As for me, God, I've set my king up. I've established him. Verse seven, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now you and I read verse seven and we think, what's going on here? David is referred to as the son of God, the begotten son of God. Right, John three sixteen. I thought that was only applicable to the person of Jesus Christ. But what happens, as I mentioned throughout the Old Testament, many times there are different groups that are referred to as the Son of God. In fact, if you would listen to this, Exodus chapter 4, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, 
Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That's Exodus four twenty-two through verse 23, and that is actually applied to the nation of Israel. Israel as a whole is referred to as the son of God. And then as well throughout the uh, Old Testament, it refers to a very particular leader or a, a vice regent, if you will. V- Psalm 89 says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's Psalm 89 verse 27. And so throughout the Old Testament, God looks upon a particular person and he says, you are my son. I've established my covenant with you. If you recall, he calls Abraham his son and calls him a friend of God. And so he looks to a particular person and establishes him as the leader, as God's representative, and he says, I've adopted you. You are now my son. I've set you up. You are my son. And so that's why he calls David his, his son there. And so in light of that, these, they're plotting against David. They're trying to, to rebel against him and overthrow him and thwart the plans and the purposes ultimately of God in David. But David is responding to them. Do you know the covenant God has made with me? He, he's, he's making it very clear to them. I'm not an ordinary king. I'm the highest of kings. God made a covenant with me. God made me his son. I am literally ruling and reigning with the authority of God. When I rule and reign, I am administering and I am representing the rule and the reign and the sovereignty of God among his people. And you think you can rebel against me. We see the covenant with God's king. So yes, they're plotting against him, but David is not fretting because he knows God has made a covenant with him. They think they can take over the kingdom. They think they can dethrone the king, but God, David is making it very clear. God made a covenant with me that my kingdom's going to be everlasting. In fact, he says in verse eight, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He's saying, God is wrapping you up and putting a bow on top and giving you to me as a gift. You are a present to me from my father. You cannot overthrow me. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we see the covenant with God's king. So then in light of that, in light of their plans and their conspiracies against God's king and the covenant God made with him, we see the kiss for God's king. Look, if you would, at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. In light of this, kings, you think you can prevail. In fact, David says to them in verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? He's letting them know, for you to come at me is to try to go against God himself. Uh, So imagine, now when I was a young kid, I was kind of a a punk. I I I I thought I could fight with people. Now, imagine, though, if you were to come, imagine if you were at a playground and you had a child and someone was messing with that child. And maybe he was even older, maybe more powerful than your son or your daughter. But he wasn't as powerful as you are. He wasn't as big as you are. You would look to them and you would say, you think you can overthrow David, but you can't take me on, buddy. 
You, you might be able to take my son or my daughter on, but you're not going to come against me because I have all the power in my possession to take you down. Now, if you have a moment that intense at the playground, well, you might need some counseling, but you get the example. So David is making it very clear here, for you to come against me is to try to go against God himself. And you might think you can overthrow me, but you can't overthrow the sovereign one. You can't overthrow the powerful one. The plans and the purposes and the decree of God cannot be thwarted. It can't be frustrated. You cannot go against God and prevail. Sin has a 0% return rate. You can never try to prevail against God. And that, my friends, is the nature of humanity. Man has always looked to God, beginning in Eden with Adam and Eve, and thought, I can make my own way. I can do it. I don't need you, God. Get out of my way. Impossible. Absolutely futile. And so David is making it very clear to them. So in light of that, we see the kiss for God's king. Verse 10, he says, wise up. Get some learning. You're not going to prosper. You can't prevail against the sovereign one. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the son. Now, I don't know about you, but I like fiction books And I like thrillers and suspenseful movies. And I like those movies that it's like slowly building up. You get some big moments here and there. And then all of a sudden at the end, it's very climatic. You're like, oh man, that was an epic ending. Like I never even saw that coming. I read Psalm 2 and I'm like, this is awesome. I mean, this is such an epic story. These, these kings are plotting against David and he's responding to them in a very bold, in a very brash, in a, very, uh, in a way with just fortitude. But then all of a sudden you get to verse 12 and he tells them to kiss him. And I read that in the first, my first glance, I was like, what a letdown. I mean, that's so strange. What's going on here? Well, in, in, in Middle Eastern culture and in David's day, to kiss a kiss was a, a homage. It was a, a pledge of allegiance. When you would kiss towards someone, you were declaring your loyalty to them. You see, it is very much like when you and I put our right hand over and we pledge to the flag. We pledge our allegiance to the United States of America. David is telling them, you need to submit to the king. Kiss the son, kiss the king. Submit to the king. Serve the king. You can't prevail against the king of God and win, so submit to him. And that, my friends, is the gospel message. You see, something that we've done here in the States that has really, it really, we've, we've established this false dichotomy in the gospel, and that is that in the gospel, you can get all the blessings and the, and the benefits. You can accept Jesus and, and get your ticket to heaven, but you don't really need to follow him. You don't really need to serve him. You don't really need to give your all to him. Submit your life to King Jesus. But that, my friends, is a false, that is just false. That's a false dichotomy within the gospel. And David is telling them very clearly, you need to submit all to the king. Give your life to him. And that, my friends, when we engage people with the gospel, that is what we are telling them. Submit to the king. You are living in rebellion against the king. Submit to him. Lay down your treason. Lay down your arms and give your life to the king. But it doesn't end there. In fact, look what he says in verse 12. And I think when I read verse 12, what a gracious God and what a gracious picture we see of God through the life of David. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Don't you love how he's contrasting this? They are trying to rebel against God. And they think they can prevail and carve out a good life for them. Have joy evermore. 
have blessing evermore. And David is saying, you're going to lose. And your life is going to be in uh, shambles. It's going to crumble. You're not going to win. It's going to harm you and affect you. And you will not prevail. But when you submit to the king, blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's saying, you think you can prevail against God. You think you know, you think you have something paved out that for you that's better than what God has. But can I tell you, blessed are all who submit to the rule and the reign of God. And David is telling them, submit. God has made a covenant and you can't overthrow it. It's established. God's purposes will come to fruition. And so this is the message of Psalm 2. And so now if you would look back at Acts chapter 4, and let's see here in Acts 4 as we close up, why do the disciples, that message, there were plotters against King David's reign, but God made a covenant with David, and, and those leaders, those rulers were called to submit to the king, and that they would be blessed for doing so, and that 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 kingdom that God promised would be everlasting. Why did the disciples use that in Acts 4 in their, in their prayer for gospel proclamation? When they need boldness to be faithful to preaching the gospel, why do they look to Psalm 2 as their source? There was something about their hostility that took place in preaching the gospel. In Psalm 2, something about the truth of Psalm 2 that gave them fortitude to not shy from preaching the gospel in the midst of hostility. In the face of hostility, there was something, there was the truth of Psalm 2 that gave the disciples fortitude to pray that God would give them boldness to be faithful to preaching the gospel. And what is that? Listen to this if you would. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Because here's the question, here's a conundrum, if you will, that we have to confront here. God promised that David's kingdom would be everlasting, that his throne would be established before God forever, 2 Samuel 7. But David is gone. And we don't see his throne. So are God's promises of no effect? Did God not come through on the promise he made to David? Listen, if you would, to Acts 2. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, Acts 2, 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, not, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his fleshy corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts thirteen twenty nine. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come from him, uh, to him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. David is indeed dead and, and with God now. 
And it would appear that that promise did not come to fruition. But the reality is, as we see the Bible unfold and we see the, the New Testament unfold, and the disciples knew it in this moment in Acts 4, that God did indeed keep his promises. God did indeed fulfill the covenant he made with David. God promised his kingdom would be everlasting and then it would be global. And that covenant, that promise from God finds its fulfillment. It comes to fruition in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And so God fulfilled his plans. God has fulfilled his purposes. And Christ is that king who was prophesied for ages, for years. And we now see the promise of that in the resurrection of Jesus. And so the king of God is indeed seated on his throne. And that is at the right hand of God. And he is presently exacting his vengeance. He is presently acting out his sovereign rule over human affairs through the preaching of the gospel. You see, the disciples in this moment realized Christ is indeed the risen king. He is the promised king that God promised through our father David. The the kingdom of God has surely come about and the king of God has surely been established. The true son of God, Jesus Christ. And they realized Jesus is extending his kingdom as we preach the gospel. That is the primary means by which God is advancing his rule and reign to the corners of the earth. You see, you and I in Piqua, Ohio, being gathered together here for church is not a light matter. This is such a big, huge, cosmic thing. This is an outpost of God's victory. Us being gathered together as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ is a a token, a banner, a sign to the world around us that God has kept his promises, that he rose his king from the grave and he rules and reigns today. As we go forth to Turkey, we are going forth with the banner of Christ's victory called the gospel to let them know you are rebelling against a holy, sovereign, creator, God. Lay down your arms, lay down your treason and submit to the king we will be heralds of the victory of Jesus Christ. And the disciples here in Acts 4, though they experienced hostility, that truth that God kept his promise and that Jesus is that promise foretold king has been fulfilled, gave them fortitude to pray for boldness because they were able to acknowledge the sovereignty of God in all things. Look what he says here in verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, there were conspirators, there were plotters against David's rule and reign, against the plan of God through David in David's day, but they didn't prevail. That ongoing conspiracy, that ongoing rebellion continued in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as he proclaimed that he was indeed the Son of God, as he proclaimed that he was indeed God incarnate, God in flesh, God come to dwell on earth, they sought to silence him as well. In John 8, they make, he makes it very clear to them, you were not sons of Abraham, because if you were, you wouldn't be rebelling, you would be listening to me. And you know what they did? They thought they could silence the work in in the words of Jesus, by slaughtering him. But they did not realize 
that in so doing, they were but puppets in the hand of God and they brought about through their killing Jesus the very plans of Jesus to again show us all that has taken place has been predestined by God. It's the plan and the purpose of God for the extension of his salvation to all peoples. And that ongoing conspiracy continues today and it is brought about on his church. You see, what's happening in Turkey with Andrew and our brothers and sisters up there? They are there as, as, uh, as the visible representation of God's kingdom on this earth. And there are rebellious people there, rebellious toward the plans and the purposes of God. Loving, hospitable people, but rebellious hearts who have not submitted to the king. And they think they are doing good but they do not realize they are simply continuing. It is an extension of the timeless rebellion that is taking place against God, his plans, and his people. That happens even here in Pickwell, Ohio. As we strive to preach the gospel and people reject, people mock, people bring about disdain, people are hostile. That is an ongoing plot to try to thwart and frustrate the plans of God. But you know what? We triumph through suffering. We are victors through lowliness. I was talking with uh, my brother Ed this morning, and we were messing around, and um, we were talking about Christianity, and something got brought up about it being for the weak. And I said, yeah, that's it, it exactly it. It's not for the strong. It's not the strong people. It's, it's, it's weak and lowly, and we triumph in preaching the gospel through our suffering through our weakness. And it's actually those exact things that God uses to advance his gospel. You read 2 Corinthians 1, we suffer so that we, through our comfort from God, can be a blessing to those who who suffer. We suffer so that the gospel can advance. And with that, because of the truth of this resurrected Jesus, who is the promised king of God, we rejoice. And we don't shy from that. Because we acknowledge that God is working all things for the advancement of his gospel. And that through the reign of King Jesus, we preach the gospel. And that gave the disciples fortitude to plead to God for boldness. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The reality of King Jesus' present reign, realized in and extended through his church, gave the apostles and the early disciples fortitude to pray to God for boldness. A man by the name of Tannehill serves us and ministers us very well by making the, common, the, the following comment. In a time of threat, prayer can be a rediscovery of the sovereign God who wins by letting our opponents win and then transforming the expected result. This rediscovery can keep God's witnesses faithful in spite of threats. We need to realize and have this high, high exalted view of Christ as the early disciples did, that he is indeed the promised Christ. He is indeed the promised Messiah, the promised King, and that he presently reigns seated at the right hand of God. And he is extending his kingdom. He is extending his reign as you and I go forth and preach the gospel. And in light of that, you know what that should do? That should give us confidence and fortitude to go to God in prayer. And plead with God. God, despite what may come, give me boldness to be faithful to preaching your gospel. 
And we need this in Piqua, we need this in Middletown, and we need this in Turkey, in the world around. We need boldness to preach the gospel. And what gives us the fortitude to pray to that in seemingly hostile circumstances is that Christ is the promised and risen king right now seated at the right hand of God. And in verse 31, God honors this prayer. You know what? In, verse, in John 15 and verse 7, God tells us, ask what you will. He says, if my words abide in you and you abide in my word, ask what you will and it will be done unto you. A plea to God for boldness to preach the gospel is a prayer that he loves and delights to fulfill. He works in and through that prayer. And he follows it with signs and wonders to attest to the reality of the risen king as we preach the gospel. And so in light of that truth, that the sovereign king is seated at the right hand of God, extending his kingdom through your effort and my effort to preach the gospel in Piqua in Turkey, let us today get on our face before God and plead that God would give us as a church and as individual believers to be faithful and give us boldness to preach his gospel to ears all around the world who have yet to hear it. Our Father, we thank you for the truth that your Son, Christ, is the promised one. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. And you rose him from the the grave. You kept your promises. And may that truth, may that reality that he is reigning now as king of the universe May it give us fortitude to pray for boldness. I pray for my brothers and sisters, even now, that, Spirit, you would fill us and pour out and give us boldness to preach the gospel uh, to, to Piqua, to Miami County, and to students, and to coworkers, and to employees and employers, God. Give us boldness to affirm and attest to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name, amen.